everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One Podcast. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast at matan.org.il. Each week we spend 30 minutes speaking about a seminal figure or idea on that week's Parsha. Parshat Chukat opens with the laws of the Paraduma, the mysterious ritual of the red heifer that purifies the impure and impurifies the pure who handle it. This is followed by the episode at Meriva, which will be the focus of our conversation today, when the people complain for water and Moshe and Aaron respond in a way that displeases God, to say the least. After this, as preparation to enter Israel gets underway, Moshe requests from the king of Edom to pass through his land, but is met with harsh refusals which lay the groundwork for an eternally troubled relationship with the Edomites. The death of Aaron is then recounted, and the Parsha ends with multiple wars with Transjordan lands as the Israelites come continually closer to entering the land of Israel. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Rachel Sharansky-Danziger, who blogs about the intersections between life, parenting, history, and the text for the Times of Israel, 929 Kfeller, and other online venues. Having researched connections between religion, emotion, and storytelling for her MA thesis in American history, she now explores similar connections in the Bible and in real life. Rachel will be teaching Tanakh in Matan's Jerusalem branch in the coming academic year. Please check out our course listings for more details. Rachel, it's a pleasure to have you here today. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. So I understand that we're going to be speaking today about the episode of Miriva, where we have another complaint in this sort of continual pattern in the desert period of complaints, where Am Yisrael functions sometimes in ways that remind us as children. Uh, they're being trained. They're on this journey. And we have here a response by Moshe and Aharon that God is not satisfied with. So take us into that episode and where where you want to bring us to today. I want to first say that this episode draws a lot of commentary. And it draws a lot of commentary because there's something unclear about it. We've been in this movie before. This is what it feels like. You know, like you said, it's an ongoing pattern that the people complain. We don't have food. We don't have water. Why did you take us out of Egypt? Are we there yet? Where's the bathroom? Mm -hmm. To take it into the parenting analogy you brought up. And time and time again, God is very much on Moshe's side. God is with Moshe and Moshe's sense of offense or being put upon. Yet here, we follow the same script. The people complain. God tells Moshe, go, take the rod in your hand and talk to the rock to bring water out. And Moshe almost does exactly that. He takes the rod in his hand, but he hits the rock instead. And then, in a shocking turnabout, instead of being on his side, God says, and I'm reading here from Bamidbar Kaf Pasukit Bet, from chapter 20, the 12th, uh, the 12th verse, Ya'an lo he'emantem bi le'hagdisheni le'enei b'nei Yisrael, l'achen lo taviu et ha'kahal haze ela aretz asher natati lahem. Because you did not trust me enough to affirm my sanctity in the sight of the Israelite people, therefore you shall not lead this congregation into the land that I have given them. What gives? Where did this come from? What did Moshe do that was so terrible, that failed so badly? And many, many commentators um, try to answer this question. 
try to explain why hitting the rock is such a big divergence from what God wanted. What's the problem? Maybe Maimonides famously says that it's not really about hitting the rock. It's about the way Moshe spoke to the people very harshly. But the net effect is that we still don't know. The mystery stands. We don't know what was so wrong. We just know that something was wrong to the point that Moshe, the leader, no longer is no longer considered fit to lead us across the Jordan River into the next chapter in our history. You know, when I come across this passage each year, and I want to be really careful with my words, but it strikes me sometimes like Adam and Chava, that the Garden of Eden episode, that it was doomed to fail. There are moments when I feel like there was going to have to be some way that Moshe was going, it was going to be clear to the people that Moshe was not going to be able to lead them anymore, right? It's that great teacher you had, he was your mechanechet, he was your homeroom teacher for two years, and no, they can't continue with you anymore. You need to grow, you need to move on. And when I come to this episode, and I just am expressing this because I think it it highlights why commentators and all of us as the readers are so shocked, is that you sort of say, there clearly isn't a good correlation between what Moshe does and the response on God's part. It just seems utterly uh, extreme. But it reminds me of that moment where I say in the story of Adam and Chava that it had to happen almost, meaning it had to happen for history to proceed the way it does. Now, that's not helpful on an individual basis or the reward and punishment or how we understand the way God judges our actions in this world, but it underscores the question that you're asking that the commentators bring of this clearly doesn't make sense to us. And I could just say, I don't know, and we'll leave it at that. But I could also say, for whatever reason, it had to happen this way. Moshe was not going to be the one who was going to come with us to our next stage. We needed to go somewhere else. So that doesn't help with any of the existential questions that you're that you're posing and that the commentators all pose. But there's a part of me, for some reason, that quells some of my my dis- internal disruption when I read this passage. I think that Moshe himself um, would agree with you in a sense, because when Moshe recounts this episode later and Varim, he doesn't say, I hit the rock instead of speaking to it, and because of that, I'm not allowed. He, he's not hanging his barring from the land of Israel onto that. He's just saying, God stop me from coming because of you right. or for you. Mm-hmm. And I always found it a very interesting ambiguity there because in a sense it is for them. For them to ever stand on their own two feet, they need to leave Moshe behind. Yeah, totally. No, I, I agree with that. And so therefore we have this story as sort of, we can hang onto this story and say this was why, but in the broader scheme, I think that, that that's it sits much better. And it, it, Moshe couldn't be the one to lead us there. It was not for our benefit, and we needed to move on to somewhere else. So, But in any event, that is just sort of, I think, highlights that, that question. And you could take it in the root of there are no answers, there is an answer, or maybe we didn't necessarily need one. But Yeah, I would say that if you leave aside this question of guilt or blame or fault, and instead start unpacking this very short scene, it's, you know, 13... 13 uh, verses and all, and looking at its elements and looking at how they fit in the broader arc of Moshe's life and his mission with the people, you start getting an inkling as to why he can't lead them past this moment. Not in the sense of why he's so guilty, but in the sense of why they need something else right now. So 
that's how I suggest to look at it. Not so much as a text that tells us Moshe did something wrong and was punished, but rather as a text that reminds us with very subtle allusions, really, of the magnitude of what Moshe had to achieve and the ways in which what he had to achieve was limited to the desert. So if I would say that in, in other words, you're saying don't see this as a crime and punishment story, see it as part of the, the arc of Moshe's story, which is a great point because we have many episodes throughout the Torah specifically where the commentators debate that exact question. Should we look at this as a crime and punishment story? A great famous example is the Tower of Bavil. Is them being dispersed a punishment for the fact that they want to stay together, or is it a natural outcome or a natural consequence? And so you're saying, look at it like that, meaning this is supposed to reflect why Moshe wasn't going to be the one to take us into the land. It's not necessarily a, a conversation about a crime and punishment. Exactly. Okay, so let's go there. Take us there. So I think that the first point of reference we have to consider um, is the previous episode, where God told Moshe, take your rod and give water to the people from a rock. This previous episode took place very soon after the Exodus itself. In fact, it took place immediately after the Red Sea and before they received the Torah. And back then, just like here, the people came and complained that they have no water. And just like here, God told Moshe to take the rod, but then he did tell him to hit the rock. So the similarities between these two episodes draw our attention, and it's a very strong hint that in order to understand what Moshe is doing here, we need to look at it in the light of what he did almost 40 years before, in the beginning of his mission of leading the people from the, through the desert. Here mm -hmm. we're already watching the last chapters of the same mission. And as Aviva Zornberg points out in her wonderful book, Bewilderments, when she analyzes the entirety of Sefer Bamidbar, but specifically in the chapter that analyzes this episode, it's not just us who remember, us the readers. It's not just us looking at the text and, and Bamidbar and saying, oh wait, didn't we see an episode almost exactly like that in Shemot? Also Moshe is guided by memory. When he takes the rod in his hand and walks towards a rock, he is reenacting something he already did before, something he already lived through. And it's not really even that surprising that what happened before guides his hand at this moment, even though God's instructions differed. But the very fact that he's enacting a memory highlights to us the gap between his internal drama or his internal sense of what he's doing and the reality around him at this moment. Because back then, and again, I'm here referring to uh, Aviva Zornberg's points, Back then, the people he was enacting this miracle in front of were the people who just now saw the Exodus. And for them, the rod had very particular set of associations. They saw the rod, the road bringing plagues onto Egypt. They saw it turning the river of water into a river of blood. They saw it bringing devastation. And in a sense, when God asks Moshe to take this rod, and God even says that actually uh, specifically there, he says, take the rod that you hit the Nile with. Mm -hmm. He says it in explicit words. What God is inviting Moshe to invite the people to do is to reinterpret or reframe him, to reframe the way God relates to reality. They saw God's might in its angry, devastating, negative aspects. By using the same rod, which is the instrument of God's will in this case, 
and bringing water and nourishment life, Moshe is inviting them to view God as benevolent, as nurturing, as a father figure mm-hmm. for them. But the generation that Moshe is facing in Bamidbar is not the same generation. That generation died out. These are people who never saw the plagues of Egypt. Their needs, their challenges, whatever it is they're supposed to learn is not tied to God's might as it revealed itself in Egypt. So by trying to teach the same lesson, in a sense, through his actions, to people who don't need this lesson, but rather need other lessons, and we can discuss that in a minute, I'm sure, Moshe is showing us that the story he is still enacting is not necessarily the story that the people need moving forward. Well, the point of what you're speaking to is really about Moshe and us understanding why he was no longer a relevant or, or suitable leader for Am Yisrael. Tucked into that point that you brought in from Aviva Zornberg is the idea that the God, our perception of God changes in different scenarios or in different time periods. And it's funny because in the past few months, I've had a particular student who sort of latched onto something I must have said a few months ago in class. And I was speaking about the fact that sort of the angry God or the God of destruction that we see in many episodes is not part of the way that I envision God at all. Uh, and obviously there are difficult times in people's lives where they they do relate to that difficult side of God. But in that piece that you're expressing, you're saying, well, the earlier people were used to a much harsher God. And so let's take that staff, that rod, the matih, and transform it in their eyes and have it be a symbol of a different kind of God. Uh, and so while the point really goes to Moshe and his inability to see that they don't need that anymore, tucked in there is a theological point that I just want to highlight for a minute, which is that God has many attributes and sides to him, and we don't need to relate to all of those sides at the same point. And it is also even theologically okay, and we see this in the Torah, not just in this example, to say, well, that version of God or that attribute of God is not a way that I envision the God that I pray to. And I think Torah specifically and Halakha certainly enables us to have that kind of latitude and how we relate to God. And so that's sort of a little theological point that's tucked in there, but I want to just highlight it because I think that a lot of times people feel that they are supposed to latch on to some sort of fire and brimstone or harsher vision of God that maybe they really understood when they were younger or maybe they imbibed from other sources. But the Torah actually doesn't necessarily reflect at all that kind of one-dimensional vision of God. So a little point there that I wanted to bring out in what you said in the name of Aviva. You're talking about it in the sense of people's personal experience of God. And I want to latch into something you hinted at just now, which is that it's also generational. Yeah. It's not just on a personal's on a person's trajectory how we relate to God at different time. It's also as generation, there's a certain gestalt. And by the way, my my other professional hat is I I studied uh, Christian history, actually. And it's interesting that we see throughout the Jewish and Christian worlds from the 17th and 18th century onwards, there's a major shift in the way people relate to God in mm-hmm. both religions, uh, away from the brimstones and uh, hell and uh, scary devastation, plagues, mm-hmm. God, um, and towards a more loving, benevolent, uh, personally attuned God. And not to go too far off the topic, but is that because of the Enlightenment or is that because people's lives are maybe perhaps less horrifically difficult, so they think of God less less difficult? I think both. both. I think both uh, explanations have merit. Uh-huh. Fascinating.
Okay, so we'll, we'll go back to Moshe then. <laughs> yeah, so this episode in particular, the particular episode in Exodus is very clearly a resonance point or a point that gives meaning to what we see in Bamidbar because it's so similar. But the truth is, if we take another step back and just break apart the scene to its components, the hitting, the speech, the rod, we can see that each of these also leads us to a deeper understanding of Moshe's mission and how he perceives it and how he experiences it and how it no longer is right or no longer enough for the generation that we're meeting in this scene, in a sense, or that he's facing in mm -hmm. this scene. Let's just start with the rod, the rod itself. Where did this rod come into the story? We remember that it was used to hit the rock in a previous episode. We remember that it was used to hit the Nile and turn it into a river of blood. But it enters the story as an object of God's power or a conduit for God's power at an earlier episode in the very first conversation between Moshe and God in the burning bush. And it becomes a conduit of God's power in answer to Moshe's anxiety, in answer to Moshe's strong protest and strong exclamation that the people are not going to believe him. God sends him to talk to the people and tell him, I am your God, I'm an emissary of your God, and I'm going to take you out of Egypt, and you're going to become once again part of the ancient story that started with your forefathers, etc., etc. And Moshe doesn't believe that it's going to work. He doesn't think speech is going to be effective, just as he seems to think that speech is not going to be effective now. Mm -hmm. And in answer, God says, okay, fine, here, the rod in your hand, when you stand there, throw it on the ground, and it'll become a snake, and uh, it'll be a sign that I am with you. And Rashi there reads into this particular sign, the fact that it's the rod that Moshe holds and that it's going to become a snake, a subtext of rebuke. He thinks that God is rebuking Moshe for his lack of faith in the people. He says, what is in your hand? And Moshe says, a rod. He says, now throw it on the ground. Rashi reads it to say, what is in your hand? a rod, you should be beaten by this rod because you spoke badly about my people. And then it's going to turn into a snake because it's the snake's arts and craft. It's a snake's uh, mm. trademark attribute and art tradition that he speaks badly, that he uses speech in a bad way, in a, in a way that leads people astray. And then if you take that further, he takes the second sign where Moshe puts his hand into his shirt and has tzara'at, he has leprosy, as also a form of punishment, because exactly. when is tzara'at ever anything positive? Exactly. Mm -hmm. A punishment specifically for lashonara. Right. And in light of that, whether we accept Rashi's reading or not, the rod itself is imbued with a personal meaning in Moshe's life before it ever becomes a symbol in the eyes of the people. Mm -hmm. The meaning for him is a sort of assurance that, yes, he can speak to the people and convince them. Obviously, for somebody who's not confident in his speech, for however we understand kvad peru, kvad lashon, uh, whether it's an impediment or he, didn't, he wasn't native to speaking the language or any of the other options that are offered, we can understand why someone like Moshe wants to go with actions and not words. I think that's a point we have to remember as well. Exactly. And when he carries out an action of hitting the rock here in Bamidbar towards the end of the period in the desert, before coming into the promised land, in a sense, he's reaffirming the same anxiety he felt in the burning bush. He never overcame it. Mm -hmm. What we see is that the same anxiety and the same rod are still with him all these years later. And 
apparently they're just not the right tool for the job that needs doing now. It's like a teacher who, you know, has been teaching for 40 years and, you know, what was revolutionary or really impactful in the beginning of their career when they're meeting a different generation. Again, these are common examples we see every day. They're just, they're not as impactful anymore. I would say more than that. I would say that Moshe's anxiety about speech and his lack of faith in the people, it's ironic, isn't it? He always say, they're not going to believe me, revealing that he doesn't believe in them. Yeah, or in himself. Served a role with that generation, the first generation that came out of Egypt. That generation, if it would have been led by, you know, a leader who always knows how to speak and how to lead them, they would have just exchanged one form of slavery for another, in mm -hmm. a sense. They who they were so used to being slaves, if some brilliant rhetorician would show up and lead them away, they would never develop the independence, the internal strength um, that they needed to develop to rise above the slave state of the mind. And in a sense, Moshe's anxieties almost invited them to do that. But they also meant that he was prone to be very harsh with them, and that harshness no longer serves a role as they move forward. But of course, the rod is only one element of this scene. It's used for hitting. And interestingly, hitting and the question of use of force goes back to another early interaction in Moshe's life, even earlier than in his interaction with God in the burning bush, his first interaction with his brothers, with the people he's supposed to later lead. The first interaction he had with his fellow Jews was mute. He saw an Egyptian hitting a Jew, an Israelite, a Hebrew slave, and he killed the Egyptian. He hit. Only the next day does he have an actual verbal communication with his fellow uh, Israelites, and it goes very badly. He sees two Hebrew slaves fighting. He sees one of them hitting the other, and he comes, and he doesn't hit. <laughs> He doesn't use force against the aggressor. Instead, he asks a question. He says, Lama take re'echa? Why do you strike your fellow? A question is a powerful thing. A question is an invitation for conversation. In the very first time that we see Moshe actually relating to one of his brethren, he is trying for the option of speech and not the option of force. But this option is rejected by the Hebrew slaves himself. Because what that man tells him, what the aggressor tells him, is not, I hit him because I'm angry with him, or you're right, I shouldn't hit him, or any of the other responses that would have continued a conversation. Instead, he rejects Moshe's right to even ask him this question. He says, Who made you chief and ruler over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? In other words, it is the Israelite slave at this point that in a sense, implies that the only kind of conversation they can have is one of force. That if Moshe wants to achieve something, he will have to hit him or kill him. Otherwise, he's not interested in hearing what Moshe has to say. And I wonder if we can see the rest of Moshe's life and work with the Israelites as an attempt to get over this early traumatic exchange and go for the option of conversation time and time again with the people, on the people's behalf, with God after the Egel, for example, constantly trying, despite his difficulty with speech, to speak, speak, speak. And then if we can see the episode here where he finally hits the rock instead of speaking to it, as him giving up, as him, in a sense, 
saying, fine, you don't want a conversation, you want it to be about force, I'll make it about force. Almost answering that early Hebrew slaves with a, you win. Now, I, I want to be very careful in what I'm saying here because Moshe Rabbeinu is, where are we and where is Moshe Rabbeinu, right? But I think that we've seen Moshe Rabbeinu in the parashat leading up to Chukat getting more and more weary from his role and from the people's demands. And in a sense, it's almost here he's saying, okay, I can't do this anymore. Fine, you win, force. What you're describing, there's an article by uh, Professor Josh Berman where he speaks about th this idea, but he takes a little bit of a different thread where he says that the the anxiety that you're describing or the lack of self-confidence that Moshe sort of takes away with him from the episode with the two Israelites is what later causes him to decide to do everything on his own. That when his father-in-law sees how he's leading the people and he says, why are you doing all this alone? And uh, Josh Berman explains that the reason why he does it all alone is because he doesn't think that anybody will trust him. And so that's really the classic sign of someone who doesn't have enough self-confidence is when they can't delegate because they think that if they delegate it, it'll sort of all fall apart. Uh, and so he reads that episode before Matan Torah and with Yitro against the backdrop of this earlier story. You're going with a little bit of a different angle regarding speech versus force. But I'll bring in another piece, and I agree with you, we have to obviously be very careful about not overanalyzing Moshe Rabenu, although ultimately I think it's a great exercise because we ultimately see ourselves in these monumental figures and it gives us insight. Uh, and so you're saying that because he's so weary at this point, he says, I'll just go back to what that was because I'll, yeah, I'll use force. That That's what you said is going to be the most powerful and not speech. And so I'll go back and use that. And, and another slightly different way of looking at that is to say that when someone is in a moment of exasperation or they're in a moment of stress, we revert back to our, let's say, reptilian selves or the self that we know is in our higher evolved self. Again, being very careful about these words with Moshe Rabbeinu, but I'll just speak on the human level right now. That, that That's what happens to us, that we lose our ability to be able to tap into those much more evolved practices we've worked on we've you know we've worked hard to get there and so it also could just be this moment where we see Moshe going back to what he knows how to do that moment with the Egyptian when he kills him is a really foundational moment where you see him using I even like to call it his Levitic heritage of violence I like that and um, I in regard to both of your points really the point from uh, Professor Berman Rabbi Berman yeah and uh, and the point about the primal self in regard to both of these points, it's worth noting that this is not the end of Moshe's relationship with the people. This is the moment when God says there's an expiration date on this relationship. But what Moshe does following this moment, um, a little bit in Bamidbar, but then throughout the entirety of the Book of Dvarim, is speech. Mm. That's the moment when Moshe uses his power of speech to model for the people, not simply to tell them their stories. This is the generation that didn't come out of the Exodus and he tells them the stories. This is the point where he models to them how to go on telling them. In a sense, this is a mission Moshe took upon himself already in Egypt. When God, on the eve of the last plague, told Moshe to tell the Jews to note the month, take a lamp, eventually kill it, put the blood above their doors, etc., etc., God also told them, and then celebrate this particular type of holiday with all the laws of Passover uh, for all generations to come. Moshe adds to it an element of storytelling. When Moshe recounts what God tells him, 
When he tells it to the people, he tells. And then when your children ask you, tell them about this night. Tell them about the time we came out of Egypt. Later, God tells um, Moshe um, that the firstborn should be consecrated to God. When Moshe retells it to the people, he says, so that when your children ask you, you tell them about how God took us out of Egypt. Right. With the whole, what you're saying is that in those prakim in 12 to 15 in Sefer Shemot, it's already recounted as a story we'll tell later. It almost doesn't speak about the events themselves. Exactly. Right? That's a very important point in but those But it's not God who right. talks about it in terms of storytelling. It's Moshe. Right. He adds this element, this very human element of how we should shape memory through storytelling. And then in Dvarim, he takes it to the next level and constantly reminds them, tell your children about this. Do mikrabi kurim, right? Every year, bring your first fruit and tell the story of the Exodus. Yeah. He models for them how to tell the story and he removes himself from the story. He decentralizes himself. He makes it about them. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, I think it's a very beautiful moment of Moshe rising above his anxieties and rising above his fear and rising above this moment of reverting to force in Parashat Chukat and modeling for them the power of speech. It's ironic that the man who started his career by saying that he's not a man of speech ends giving us the book of Dvarim, which is mm-hmm. all words, it's all sp- long, long, long speeches. Um, in a sense, giving us the gift of being able to continue without him by having a story to tell on our own. Wow. I'm taking that in for a moment. I think that ultimately what this depiction of Moshe that you've beautifully illustrated in our conversation today, it's this very powerful reminder about the the ways we take the raw materials that we're given and the journeys we can go on to shift and mold them. Uh, and if Moshe started with perhaps that difficulty in speech, whatever that really meant. And he starts with that, you know, primal space of violence that ultimately he becomes the greatest orator (laughs) that we have in in the Torah. And it's sort of this unbelievable uh, way of looking at how people people self-improve, how people grow, uh, and how we're able to do that uh, in service of God, ultimately, uh, of course, for Moshe. Rachel, thank you so much for this conversation today. It was utterly beautiful. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Please make sure to check out the Matan website or call our office to hear more details about Matan Summer Program. This year's topic is the Jewish emotional experience with all of your heart and soul. The program dates begin July 3rd to the 21st. You can check out again our website or speak to the office to hear more details for this enriching, wonderful summer experience. We will get to meet many of the Matan staff, including myself. We look forward to seeing you there. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do One-on-One and Women's Torah Learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.